psalm for this morning um, is not the whole thing of Psalm 37, but uh, a big chunk of it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints." They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. So uh, this sermon this morning, I don't, I've never preached a sermon on this topic before, and I was trying to rack my brain and think if I'd ever actually even heard a sermon on this topic before, and I don't think that I have. I think this is uh, something that I've never thought to preach on before, but the thing about preaching through the story of the Bible, um, like we've been walking through together lately, is that you run into stuff that you have to talk about because it's, in, it's, it's a major part of the story of the Bible, and it's a good reminder that I've been forgetting something. I've been not emphasizing something as much as I should. And that thing today, well, so again, we go back to the promises that God made in the covenant to Abraham, right? God promised three things to Abraham. One, he promised him that he would bless him and bless the world through him. You guys remember what this means. Blessing is not doing nice things for him, although that's true enough, he did nice things for him. Blessing is the opposite of the curse from Genesis chapter three. So when God promises Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless the world through you, what he's saying is I'm gonna reverse the curse. What Adam and Eve screwed up in the world, what you and I have been complicit in screwing up in the world, what Abraham was complicit in screwing up in the world, God tells Abraham, I'm actually gonna use you to reverse that and fix it. I'm gonna save the world through you. Again, Abraham doesn't know how this is gonna happen. He never knows it, but he, God fulfills that promise. We'll look at that as we go through the story of the Bible. Second thing he promises him, 
is offspring. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you offspring, and that offspring is going to rescue the world. Uh, um, we looked at this a few weeks ago. We know this is Jesus. We'll come back to this in, in, in future weeks as well. And today we come to the third piece. You have blessing. You have offspring. God promised Abraham a land, a promised land. Let's, do, let's talk about this this morning. What does it mean that God promised Abraham a land? And what does it mean for us as well? So I want to look at, so I, should, I should make this point too. Some of you, uh, a couple of you have mentioned something along these lines to me. You've asked me questions that have kind of hinted around a bit of confusion about this. You'll notice, those who've been with us, you'll notice that what I'm not doing is religion in here. I'm not talking about how you and I should feel about the world. I'm not talking about how we can be comforted for our guilt. I'm not talking about how our behavior can be changed. I haven't been talking at all even about, mainly even about what we should be believing. Those are all secondary. What I've been doing primarily is history. Just been talking about what God is doing in human history. And then secondarily, how should we react and respond to that? This is basically, what we're doing basically is history lessons. But the Bible is history. God deals with the world in real time, in history. He doesn't deal with it psychologically primarily or emotionally primarily or intellectually primarily. He deals with this by doing mighty things throughout the course of human history. One of these things, of course, is promising Abraham to give him blessing, offspring, and land. So let's look at what the promise of the land is. We'll talk about what, who gets the promise of the land, and then we'll talk finally about where is the promised land. And then I'll have a few uh, short applications for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. So first of all, what is the promise of the land? Well, we just read this in Genesis chapter 12, right? In verse 7, this is that the, uh, in, in your bulletin. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord. And then uh, chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, The Lord said to Abram, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, west. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God promised Abraham this chunk of property on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, uh, what the Bible refers to as Canaan, uh, what we call uh, today the Levant. That was promised to Abraham. This is going to belong to you. And this promise carries its way all throughout the story of the Bible. God's people hold on to this promise. That land was promised to us. God is going to give us that land someday. We should act like we are loyal to the God who promised that land so that he will let us live in the land. There's a ton of these examples. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's a gazillion of these. I'll just give you one, almost at random. Isaiah 14, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. God's people uh, in exile in Babylon, God promises, I will someday take you and put you back in the land that I promised Abraham I would give you. That land is yours. It's yours in perpetuity. I will give it to you forever and ever. We see this in the Psalm reading. So look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 9 through 11. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. What land? Well, the land that God promised to Abraham. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Look over at verse 22, next page. 
For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 29 and 34, which the way I've got it broken up here, they're back to back in the bulletin. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So key theme of Psalm 37 is, I promised you this land, I guarantee you will inherit the land. It's a major part of what God's people in the Old Testament believed and held on to. You guys will notice, of course, we were reading the gospel reading, the Beatitudes. Jesus picks up on this, doesn't he? And he quotes from Psalm 37, 11 in the Beatitudes when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's actually a quote from Psalm, the meek shall inherit the earth. This promise of God giving his people the land, Jesus picks up on and says, it's still good to go. It's still good to go. The meek, in, in other words, in, in, in this, sometimes you can look at the Beatitudes and you can be like, okay, so what is it? I need to be meek then so that I can inherit. The, how do you be meek? That's not really the point. If you go back to Psalm 37, you'll see that the meek are those who trust God and who abandon unrighteousness and wait for the Lord to vindicate him. That's who the weak, in other words, God's people. God and now Jesus in Matthew 5 are promising God's people, you will get the land. Those of you who are God's people, you will receive the land. It's a very, very important part of God's mission to reclaim his world is that this piece of property, this promised land is going to belong to you, God's people forever and ever. Okay, that's what the promised land is. I, most of you probably know that. For those of you who don't, it might be new, but it's good review nevertheless. I also wanted to tie it into Psalm 37 because we're gonna be looking at Psalm 37 a bit more in a few minutes. Okay, now to the question, who gets the promised land? Who gets this promise of the land? Offspring of Abraham, right? It all goes together in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. God promises Abraham blessing, salvation, offspring, and then he promises Abraham and his offspring the land forever and ever. So easy answer is it's the offspring of Abraham who gets this. Now look over at the epistle reading. And like I warned you last week, this is not the way we're normally, I'm normally gonna preach in here. I'm normally gonna sit like on one text. But I have to jump around to try and tell this story. So I'll be, I'll be doing a little bit of jumping around this morning. Romans 4, look at verses one through five. What then shall we say, say was gained by Abraham or, fa, or our forefather according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, uh, I don't have time to get into this right now, but justified basically means right with God. God says, you are right with me. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And it goes back and quotes from Genesis chapter 12. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham doesn't have to do anything to get this promise from God. He has a dream, a vision, and God says, I'm giving you this promise. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this. Not even circumcision, because he wasn't circumcised when God gave him this promise. That all came later. The promise of the land, like the promise of all of salvation, is completely dependent upon God's decision to give the land to people whom he chooses to give it to. So Abraham's offspring are, shorthand, whoever God chooses to give it to, and the way he does that is through faith. Romans 4 makes this clear. Let me look down uh, a bit, uh, let's see, uh, verse 11 here. He received the sign, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to, here, the purpose of choosing Abraham was this, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
as well as those who are circumcised, who aren't really circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, I'm talking fast, I know that. Let me break that down. What's Romans 4 saying? Paul is saying God made promises to Abraham to give him blessing, offspring, and the land. Who gets that? Everybody agrees, Paul agrees, Jesus agrees, disciples agree, the Jews that they're talking to agree. It's the offspring of Abraham. But now Paul is gonna answer the question, well then who's the offspring of Abraham? Well, it's a no-brainer. Say a lot of Jews during Jesus' day, if you can get on genealogy.com and trace your heritage back to Abraham, ethnically, biologically, then you are the offspring of Abraham. Paul says, not that quick. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your biology that connects you to Abraham. It's your faith in Jesus. For those who believe in Jesus, he says in verse 11, Abraham is the father of you. Abraham is your father, which means that all the promises God gave to Abraham come to you, the offspring. I'm going to put this off until a, 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 a future sermon, but the offspring is going to be Jesus. We'll look at Galatians 3 um, at, at a future date. The blessing, salvation. Salvation was promised to Abraham and his offspring. You believe in Jesus, that's you. You are Abraham's offspring, you get the blessing. And the land. The land was promised to Abraham. Who does the land belong to? It belongs to those of you who've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The land belongs to you. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, okay, so he just said the land belongs to me. What's that some kind of metaphor for? like some kind of spiritual truth that he's hinting at here. No, we're not talking about spirituality or religion. We're talking about history. The land belongs to those of you who believe in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what land? What's the land? We'll talk about that in just a second. How does, this do, how does he do this? How does faith in Jesus get us this promise of the land? How can believing in Jesus get you the promise of the land? Well, it's hinted at in Psalm 37. Can we flip back there? So if this was a Baptist church when I was growing up uh, and th there was no bulletin, you'd have to be flipping back and forth in your Bibles a lot. So you should be thankful that we don't do that. It's all in the bulletin here for you. Chapter 37, we already read of Psalm 37. We read verses nine through 11. It's hinted at here. Let's check this out. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You see what the psalmist is saying? You look at the wicked. You look at those who have the power. You look at those who have all the money. You look at those who have all the cultural cachet and you think, they're it. They're in charge. This is their world and the rest of us are just living in it. But here's the thing. The psalmist says they'll be cut off there's, I, was re, I read Ecclesiastes recently. It's a big theme in there, which is basically like this. It goes like this. If you choose to live your life for money or possessions or power or for sex or for pleasure, all of those good gifts of God, but when we make them the centerpiece, the focal point, the goal and destiny of, the, of how we get up in the morning, what we're gonna find is that however much you get of that, however much money you get or property you get or sex you get or power you get, eventually you're gonna die and it all goes away. The, 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 the writer of Ecclesiastes says, 
I looked around and I saw that the people who are working hard and making money and building huge houses and getting a bunch of land and padding the IRAs, they die and then they give it to their foolish kids who just waste it. Writer of Ecclesiastes. That's what happens. All the people that you look around and you say, well, they own the world and we're just living in it. They will die and it won't be theirs anymore. Okay, so how do we inherit the land then? Well, here's the key. What if somebody could own the land and then never, ever die? It would be theirs in perpetuity. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter four. God becomes a human being. He dies. He beats death. He rises again from the dead. He becomes the Lord of the universe. And he never dies again, which means it always is his. He outlasts everybody, everybody, everybody. Who, who has made more money in concerts, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Well, it's the Rolling Stones, right? Because the Beatles keep dying and the Rolling Stones refuse to die. They just keep going and going and going. And assuming that they could keep on going forever and ever, they would be the richest rock band of all time. They might, they might already be. It's very, very callous, but that's what's going on here. Jesus owns everything, and he does not give up. The wicked can wait him out and wait him out, but they die before he does, because he doesn't ever die. And when Paul says, if you trust in Jesus, if you've been baptized, I'll quote Galatians 3 to you. If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, then you've put on Christ, and the promises of Abraham then belong to you. Paul says in Galatians 3, if you are inside of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, then you are heirs, you are the offspring of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. In other words, you will never ever die because you are inside the one who never ever dies. And that means you will outlast all of the wicked. You will outlast all the bad politicians. You'll outlast all the greedy money brokers. You'll outlast all the moguls. The land belongs to you because you are in Jesus Christ. Now, where's the promised land? Here's the third thing. So I've been telling you guys that in Jesus Christ, the land belongs to you. Where is it at? Well, okay, so it's the Levant, right? It's the land that God promised Abraham. They're on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Yes, that's true. But there are hints, even in the Old Testament, that it's a little bit bigger than that. This is good. This is juicy stuff. Um, uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham, God says to David in Psalm 2, one of my favorite Psalms of all time, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, God says to David. David's the king of the little tiny property that he promised Abraham on, on the Levant. And God says, you're, you're, don't, don't, don't think small. Ask me and I will give you the whole shebang. This is little, little David. It's a tiny, he's not, he's not a big powerful king. It's a little tiny country. Uh, what was that, 3,000 years ago, way smaller than uh, Egypt, way smaller than the Hittite Empire, way smaller than the Assyrians, way smaller than the Greeks, way smaller than the Romans or the Persians were gonna become in a few years. A little tiny, and yet God is saying to the Messiah of Israel, David, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Later on in the Psalms, and there's a lot of Psalms that are like this, later on in the Psalms, God says, and we almost sang this hymn this week, but we, we sang it last week, so we couldn't sing it two weeks in a row. That would not be... Uh, it's just not done. But uh, um, uh, uh, come ye that love the Lord. We're marching to Zion. It's based on Psalm 87, which goes like this. On the holy mount stands the city he found. I'm sorry, not, 
Come ye that love the Lord, but glorious things of you are spoken. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. I'm quoting, I'm reading from Psalm 87 now. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Okay, now check this out. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, which is kind of, um, I know there's a character called Rahab in the Bible, but, but Rahab is a word in the Psalms for Egypt. I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. These are all foreign nations, some of them who've been opposed to Israel militarily and politically. All of them foreign nations. This one was born there, they say. Hold on, wait. The, the psalmist says, I look around and I see people from Babylon. I see Egyptians. I see people from all over the world. That person was born in Zion. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. He's, the Lord, there's this day in the future the psalmist sees when God is all over the world. He's in Egypt. He's in Philistia. He's in Africa. He's in Asia. He's in Europe. He's in Glen Carbon, Illinois. And he says, that person is born in Zion. Put him down on the citizenship list. In other words, God's determined to make the whole world his land. God's determined to make the promised land bigger and bigger and bigger until it covers the whole world, until the righteousness of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Go back to Romans 4. Paul says this explicitly in Romans chapter 4. Flip over back to the epistle reading. Okay, God promises Abraham the promised land. What did he mean? Now, Paul doesn't even explain this in Romans 4. It's almost like a throwaway line. But check out the last verse of Romans chapter, of our reading in Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he should be the heir of what? Canaan? The Levant? No, the heir of the world. God promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. A promise that comes to us not by the law, but by righteousness of faith in Jesus Christ, the king of the world, the king of the whole world, who has died and risen and can never die again. And if you're in him, you are an heir of the whole world. The whole world belongs to you. All right, now what are we going to do with this? A couple quick uh, applications and then we'll be done. First of all, what does Jesus do with it in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount? He starts off by saying, the meek will inherit the earth. And then a few verses later, he says, you are the salt of the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That's you guys. You are the salt of the earth. What does he mean? I mean, what is, what is salt in the ancient world? That's an interesting, for some of you, boring, for some of you, question to talk about. Salt is a, it's a preservative. It's a flavoring. It doesn't really matter right now what it is. The point is, is that it's good stuff, and it helps the world out that we're here whether we're preservatives or flavoring or a purification, thing, a, you know, a tool of purification. The world needs God's people. They are good for the world. Later on, he says, you are the light of the earth. The world is a dark place except for this light that God has put in the midst of it, you guys. And it belongs to you, and so you should live in the earth. So what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? First of all, we should live in it. Psalm 37, go back to Psalm 37. This is the last time we'll flip around. We'll spend a few seconds here in Psalm 37, then we'll be done. Psalm 37, verse three, trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The land belongs to you. I know it doesn't look like that. It looks like those guys, the bad guys are in charge, but it actually belongs to you. 
So dwell in the land because it belongs to you. Part of being the salt of the earth is to be in the earth. There's a Christian impulse, which is very, very old. It goes back thousands of years, which is we should just withdraw. We're like different than everybody else. Let's just get behind the walls of our Christian ghetto and hide out here and kind of just play it safe. Maybe kind of look down on the people out there. No, you're the salt of the earth. The psalmist says, no, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Resist the the monastic impulse to flee from the world. There's a book that was kind of popular in our circles, written by an Orthodox guy, uh, Eastern Orthodox guy, several years ago, an American guy named Rod Dreher, called The Benedict Option, in which he kind of argued for this. Like, what's the next step for Christians? Like, well, nobody likes us. Just kind of take our ball and go home and let the world see what it's like when we're not there. Kind of like Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. All the rich, intelligent people with the money should go and hide out from all the masses who need them but don't like them. This is not, that's absolutely not what the Bible is calling us to do and to be. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. You are the salt of the earth. It belongs to you. You're not, fight, you're not living in a place that's, that you're a stranger in. This world is not, is not your home. This world is your home. God promises it to you. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Don't be afraid. Verse 30, uh, Psalm 37, 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Psalm 37, 8, second line. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Don't be afraid. When I talk to Christians a lot these days, one of their main emotional responses to the culture around them is fear. You don't like what's going on. Everything's going bad. Don't be afraid. It just tends to evil. Fear is a result of lack of faith, not trusting that the God who owns the world and who says, I'm giving the world to you, is actually in charge. And it's a lack of love when we're afraid. It's a lack of love for those who God is calling through us, through our witness, to this new creation reality that he's made. This promise to us that I'm giving my human creatures the entire world. Love, faith, love, faith, love, faith gets rid of fear. Don't be afraid. The land belongs to you. Don't be envious. Verse 1. Second line, be not envious of wrongdoers. We're envious of people when, they, when we think that they have something that's better than what we have and we want it. And clearly, the, the promises of God, blessing, offspring, and land, that's like the, that, that's the acme of everything that's good in the world. It's all happiness. It's all joy. It's all, it's all power. It's all pleasure. It's been promised to us. Why would we be jealous and envious of people who have something that's fleeting. When the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills says, I'm giving it all to you, and you look at someone who has two cows and you says, oh, I wish that I had that. They're always, like these rich people are always in charge and I'm just, we don't have anything. It's not, it's not reality. We're living in unreality when we're envious of those who are wicked. Act with righteousness, verse 27 uh, second page. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. Turn away from evil and do good. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. When we live lives of love and honesty and faithfulness and putting others first, even when they disagree with us, when we live lives like this, we are assigned to the world that there's a God who's in charge that makes us content with our lot and they too can be happy and content. They too can know what it's like to own the whole thing if they would come and submit to King Jesus. It's a sign to the world that the new creation has happened. And then finally, of course, a trust in Jesus. 
Trust in the Lord, verse three, do good. Dwell in the land, be friend faithful. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Trust in Jesus and let him take care of human history. We don't have to force anything. We don't have to fight for anything. We don't have to be scared we're gonna lose because God never loses. Trust in Jesus and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. He will vindicate you. He will vindicate his own righteousness. He will vindicate himself in his own due time. Trust in Jesus. He has won the whole world for himself. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord of the universe. He owns the whole world. And for those of you who are in him, he promises it to you. For those of you who aren't in him, he's offering it to you. Receive Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to trust you. Thank you for the promise of all good things. Thank you for the promise of the land. Father, we pray that in your own good timing, you would make this new creation reality, ultimate reality amongst us. Make all things new, ourselves, our relationships, our environment. Uh, Make all things new for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.